I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Miami. Miami had become the murder capital of the United States. I would categorize it as the wild, wild west. Every day, somebody was getting shot, murdered, robbed. Does anybody that crossed the cartels in any way, they just killed everybody that was home. Down at the end of the bar, there's this guy, hands me his card, says Clay Williams, intercept, detective agency. About two weeks later, got a call from Bob Adams. He's president of Intercept. He said they found Clay. And so I go down to Miami-Dade Sheriff's Office. At a certain point, they start pulling out pictures of Clay Williams' body, Polaroids taken out in the Everglades. And he's just, he's a skeleton. And I tell him, I think I might be responsible for this death. They said, look, you're involved with some dangerous people here. And I report back to Bob. I call and tell him what I found out. He said, good work, good work. And so that was sort of my first job for Intercept. As a private detective? As a newspaper reporter slash private detective, yes. It's October of 1981, and Phil Stanford has basically moved into the job Clay Williams' murder has vacated, a murder he still believes he may have caused. As a result, Stanford's compelled to pay his respects by attending the deceased man's memorial service. All in all, it's an awkward situation. It was a a strange funeral anyway, in a large, sort of double-wide trailer alongside Dixie Highway. And I got the feeling that some sort of fly-by-night preacher was conducting the ceremony. Boy, I wish I I had a, a recording of the ceremony because it was all about the preacher wondering how God could allow something like this as awful as this to happen. And standing in the back end of the trailer were about four or five very big guys, obviously detectives from the the sheriff's officer, Miami police, big guys. I mean, like 6'5", 6'6", 250 pounds or more, wearing sports coats and suits and sort of smiling. 
They were there to send a message. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami. Are you still working for the newspaper? Well, sort of. uh, But remember, I was expecting to get fired about this time. And after my visit with the detectives, uh, Bob said he might have something for me. So, yeah, it it must have been shortly after the funeral that I sort of stopped uh, going (laughs) into the paper. Uh, Ruth and I broke up. We were still friends, though, I think. And I moved to Miami Beach which wasn't anything like it is today. Uh, I mean, at the time, it was all pensioners and Mariolitas, completely run down. Tourists just didn't go there anymore. I got a room at the Cardozo, which was on Ocean Drive, right across from the beach, $190 a month. Wow, that's a good deal. I doubt that you could find a place for one night in Miami Beach there at those rates anymore. Situated at 13th and Ocean Drive in South Beach's Art Deco district, today the Cordoza Hotel has been updated to surpass even its former glory. But at the time Stanford was staying there, it was a shabby, chic, hipster hangout for artists, writers, and other creative sorts, many of whom sparred with witty banter on its legendary porch, hoping to make and leave their marks. Stanford already had access to the scene through an artsy and intellectual bohemian couple by the last name of Rothschild. Oh, yeah. John and Susan Rothschild. They were friends of friends in D.C. John was a a writer and very sharp guy. And and Susan, beautiful woman, was a former New York socialite. Her father had owned the 21 Club in New York City and turned hippie. And she and John had taken up together shortly before they landed in in Miami Beach. They had a nice place in Miami Beach. They became uh, good friends, and I saw a lot of them, too. John Rothschild passed away a few years back, leaving behind an impressive array of books and compelling magazine articles. His New York Times obituary cited him as a prolific journalist who used humor to turn books about personal finance into engaging reads. His widow, Susan, shares that wit. Here's her outgoing voicemail message. Hi, if I'm not answering the phone right now, it's because I can't find my phone. And as soon as I find it, I'll call you back. Bye. When we connected, I passed along Phil's praise of both her intellect and stunning beauty. Well, I was, anyway, at 83. I don't know how stunning I am, unless I hit someone over the head to stun them. But uh, anyway. Here's her take on Phil during his Cordoza porch days. He wasn't actually my type, but he was attractive looking and smart. I would say I found him very simpatico. He was slightly brash. But he was very also involved. He had two adorable children, and he was very good with them. He was a very good single father, I think. Phil's boys would visit from Oregon when their school breaks permitted. They were sort of our kids' age, and so we all hung out together. It was very easy. 
I recently read an article that Jack McClintock had written about life on the porch of the Cordozo. Cordozo, yes. And it kind of glamorized the circle of writers, including your husband and Phil. Yes, they had fun and they were very involved in peripheral daring do. The article I'm referring to originally appeared in Marquee Magazine and described the Cordoza as a place where that daring do rose to the most random of rivalries, including one for ugliest Hawaiian shirt. The author, Jack McClintock, thought he'd won that competition until he wrote. Phil Stanford, who was a barefoot surfer in Hawaii for a couple of years before he began writing for the New York Times Magazine, and being a political activist, and the private detective, and country songwriter, and all the other things he was, Stanford started showing up wearing an entire series of sleazy Hawaiian print shirts, for which he claimed to have paid exactly $1.79 apiece. For the record, Phil denies the country music allegation. McClintock goes on to write, Stanford thought he'd won, hands down, and would have, if it hadn't been for John Rothschild, John's nonfiction about Florida is as wise and wry as John D. McDonald's fiction about the same subject. According to his wife, Susan, for a time, John Rothschild focused on the more dangerous aspects of Miami, including drug smuggling and organized crime. When we talk about the lawlessness, the, you know, Wild West feel, Phil mentioned that there was, at the time, there was a traffic incident and one guy got out and started shooting, and the other guy got out of his car and started shooting. Was that a part of your reality there? Yeah, yeah, yes. We were driving. There's an Italian restaurant named Osteria, Osteria del Orso. We were with Sasha, who must have been nine or ten in the car, and there were police outside. I said, oh, look, they must be shooting a movie. She said, no, they're not shooting a movie. That's a crime scene. And she was right, because in the next day in the papers, it turned out the chef had been killed in that restaurant. Now, how that nine-year-old knew, you know, growing up on Miami Beach. Back to Phil and his days at the Cordoza. Uh, Yeah, and and then there was uh, my cop friend, J.D., who I'd met while I was still working at the news. He'd stop by uh, in street clothes, of course, because he usually worked undercover, park his motorcycle out front and come up on the porch and talk. What was he like? J.D., he was a tough boy, uh, ex-Special Forces in Vietnam. And his job with Miami-Dade Sheriff's Office was felony warrants, which means he had to bring in the guys who were running from the law, who jumped bail, uh, and usually pretty dangerous people. Uh, so and, you know, he'd go into the roughest parts of Miami, put a gun to the fugitive's head, and bring them out by himself. He said that if he, he worked alone, because if you worked with a partner, you might get yourself killed. When I tell J.D. about Intercept, he sort of smiles and says it sounds kind of hinky to him, which was cop talk at the time for suspicious or illegal. Uh, Naturally, I think this is very cool. Perhaps a bit enamored by the danger and the sense of adventure, Stanford was all too willing to dive into the new role of private investigator by tackling the next assignment, Intercept, and Bob Adams tossed his way. The first job was a surveillance job. He wanted me to follow a doctor who was getting divorced, the wife, had hired them for some reason, never clear to me. She wanted to know what he was doing. Bob had me do this. He said, the doctor's gonna be picking up the two little boys, must have been at the mother's house, at this address, tomorrow night, 
just follow them and see where they go. Why the wife would have wanted to know this, I have no idea, but the house was sort of at the bottom of a hill. I parked up the hill, looking down at, towards the house. It was already dark. And lights came on in the front porch. A man and two little boys came out in the lights, walked towards his car, and started to get in. And I started to get nervous that <laughs> they'd get away before I, I wouldn't be able to, to keep up with them. So I started the car which turned on the lights right away and sort of blasted them with light. And one of the kids said, Daddy, Daddy, someone's following us. That was my first job, and I was an utter failure at it. I, I was discovered by <laughs> an eight-year-old. I just sort of slunk off, let the car roll down, turned off the first left I could, and, and that was that. The next morning, I went in to Bob, and I told him what had happened. I said, Bob, I'm sorry. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And laughed. He has, had this giggle. And he pulled out a, a roll of bills. Turned out to be hundreds, all hundreds. And, and he started peeling them off for me. I think I peeled off 500s. He said, good work. <laughs> I'll let you know when I have another job for you. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If being handsomely rewarded for his ineptitude did strike Stanford as odd, he didn't let it keep him from taking on another job with Intercept. About three days later, he had another job. It was the same doctor again. And this time... I was smarter. I, I followed the doctor. He had a sports car. I think he had a Porsche. At a decent interval to a, an apartment building, a, a young lady came out of the apartment building, got in his car, followed them to a motel, sort of a seedy motel on the outskirts of Miami. And after they'd parked, it was late in the afternoon, almost dusk. I pulled into the same parking lot at the other end of the parking lot and waited, and waited. (laughs) And next thing I know, someone is tapping on my window with a coin or something, shouting, wake up, asshole. So you fell asleep on the job. Yeah, and, and, and when I look out the windshield, the doctor's car is gone, and there is J.D. grinning at me. He says, don't worry, I'm not gonna get you fired. So we go to an all night diner, and he clues me in. And what he tells me is the best he can figure out, I'm just there to handle the stuff that comes in from the yellow pages so the rest of the guys can tend to the real business, which is making the real money. Which was? Uh, The drug business, of course. This is Miami. And so I go in the next morning to apologize, and Bob does the same thing as before. He says, don't worry about it. Main thing is we can tell his old lady that... Her husband and his girlfriend went to the motel. That's all she cares about, just wants something to be pissed off about. And then he peels off another five $100 bills. At which point I say, hey, Bob, now that's really generous of you, but just so you know, I do understand what my job here is. And that's to handle the stuff that comes in from the yellow pages because you guys are too busy with other matters, right? And he looks at me, does sort of a double take, and and then he laughs and peels off another couple hundred or so and says, let's go get a couple of drinks, and this time you're buying. And and just like that, I'm one of the guys. What was going through your head? So obviously your first two assignments weren't exactly home runs, yet you're making a ton of money, a ton of money given the time, particularly cash. Yeah, I thought it was a great job. (laughs) I mean, no matter what I did, I got paid very well. And I got to hang around talking with these guys who had great stories. They'd talk about their adventures. and So so take me into that. On top of being an investigation firm, it was staffed with some really charismatic, intriguing guys. Just tell me a little bit about stepping into that world. That was the payoff for me. I didn't care that much about the money. They were willing to talk. And people who've lived lives like that really have a lot of stories, and they want to talk about them. Other people don't understand how unusual their lives are sometimes. 
especially, it would seem, the head of Intercept, Bob Adams. Bob loved to talk, and and since I was no longer in the journalism business, boy, did he have some stories to tell. Turns out all the uh, top guys at Intercept had been in military intelligence or the CIA. Uh, Bob had been with a military intelligence unit in Frankfurt, Germany, that he said provided logistical support for professional assassins working for the United States. Another guy on the board had been the CIA station chief in Miami during the Bay of Pigs time. So what was the tie between the Central Intelligence Agency and Miami? Cuba, and in particular, the CIA's secret war to oust Fidel Castro. In fact, the CIA's largest outpost in the 1960s and 1970s was the infamous J.M. Wave Station at the University of Miami campus. The operation left many former agents in the region with some pretty interesting resumes in the 1980s. Did Williams have a military background, too? Or intelligence? Yeah, they they said that Clay Williams whose spot, I guess you could say, I I took in the detective agency, had been with military intelligence. If you were involved with the front-end stuff, the sort of business they get from calls on the yellow pages, what were the military intelligence guys doing with anything that had to do with drugs? For the most part, that was really uh, above my pay grade. But Bob did tell me one story about uh, the time he and a couple of the guys had to go up to Georgia to clean some moldy money, uh, not, not launder money, but clean some money that had been stored underground so long that it was getting moldy. Bob said he cleaned it mostly in a wash, uh, washer-dryer and uh, that he got one-tenth of, of all they were able to salvage. What was in Georgia? Why did he have to go to Georgia to clean money? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, that's where Lamar was, Lamar Chester. And, and, and it was no big secret at all that their biggest client at the time was this dashing dope pilot by the name of Lamar Chester. So who was Lamar Chester to interceptor Bob Adams? To Bob, Lamar was uh, a legend among dope pilots. Uh, one of the first to start flying uh, marijuana directly from Colombia. He had an island in the Bahamas that was sort of a Motel 6 for dope pilots making the, the run from South America. Lamar had gotten into the business in Miami, but his home base was now a chicken ranch up in northern Georgia. That's where he was flying into now. In such an infamous era of drug smuggling, what made Chester stand out? Bob was fascinated by Lamar. said his nickname was Captain America. He thought he looked like the Marlboro Man. And he said when you saw him, he usually had a girl on each arm. So if Chester was involved with drug smuggling and Intercept was involved with Chester, did you ever stop to think that that might have played a role in Clay Williams' murder? If I did, I didn't spend too much time thinking about it. It was a place I I didn't really want to go, I guess. Or maybe it was intentionally rationalized. Yeah, well, the way Bob explained it to me, was that Clay was sort of a facilitator. Uh, he'd hang out at the Prine Pub and use the payphone on the wall. Remember, this was well before the day of cell phones. And he'd connect suppliers with pilots or, or say, set up pilots with offload crews. The way Bob explained it, just about every bar in Miami catered to a particular level of the drug trade. And the Prine Pub, for example, was sort of mid-level. But exactly what Clay Williams was doing 
that got him killed, if that's what it was, uh, Bob never told me and I never asked. But didn't you think it was odd that here you are working for a private investigation firm and they didn't seem too interested in figuring out who had killed one of their employees or why? I mean, did you ever stop to think that maybe you could end up dead too? (laughs) I was at a place in my life where I, I really didn't care about this. I think I was the only one I knew at that time who didn't carry a gun, which is probably why no one shot at me. But I remember one time going into Bob Adams, and I said, Bob, I got a threat. He said, oh, don't worry about the ones you hear. And I was happy for the job. Okay, but back to Clay Williams. There was no further attempt to find out who killed him? Yeah, uh, other than the initial dog and pony show of driving me around after Clay was killed. Uh Uh-huh. So it didn't concern you at all that your new place of employment seemed caught up in sketchy, dangerous, drug-related activities? Uh, No. Uh, And to tell the truth, I I actually thought it was kind of cool. Just what I was looking for when I came to Miami. But I've got to say that even at the time, dumb as I was, I was at least smart enough to know that there's some things you don't ask questions about, and Clay Williams' death was probably one of them. What about now? But now, yeah, it's certainly one of the things about this story I'd like to get to the bottom of. When I started scouring newspaper archives for any mention of Williams, either missing or being found, there was nothing, which immediately struck me as odd, especially if he were former military intelligence. Since Phil had what he believed was his full name. Clay had a slightly unusual name. It was Baines Clayton Williams. His date of birth and that he was originally from North Carolina, I'd put in a formal request for any existing records with the Miami-Dade Police Department on January 5th of 2022, explaining I was hoping to track down the police report on the murdered private investigator from Miami whose body was found in the Everglades in October of 1981. In the meantime, Phil searched the archives of old newspapers. The one thing I was able to find was an obituary for Clay's mother, who died in 2011 in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it listed her living sons and her predeceased son, Baines Clayton Williams. And what turned out to be uh, really important, because the surviving children of her deceased son, and their names were listed there. How many children did he have? He had had four kids. Next, we tracked down Clay's wedding announcement to a woman named Sandra. They were both young, a short announcement from the Charlotte paper. They were married in, in 1961, June of 1961, and Clay was working at some electrical company. She was working at a, at a store, very pretty girl. They must have been a handsome couple. Using the names of the couple's children, I was able to do a reverse search of known relatives. After a series of dead ends and disconnected numbers, I called Phil with an update. I think I actually found Sandra. I ended up calling the house that had her name listed, also the man who I believe was her second husband. And he answered, and unfortunately, she passed away five years ago. But he 
was very open to my questions. He explained that it really remains a cold case as far as the family's concerned, that they never had any true answers as to who murdered Clay or why. But he was willing to link me with one of Clay's daughters. And she ended up returning my phone call. And so I spoke to her, and she also mentioned the large guys at the funeral that you mentioned seeing who you believe were detectives. How old was she then? She would have been eight when her father passed. Oh, my. There were four kids. Her older sister was 12. She has a twin sister who was also eight. And then there was the youngest child, her little brother, was just two months old when his father disappeared and ended up murdered. I have a vague recollection of the mother holding that baby at the funeral, yeah. Um, She also says that her father's car was found shortly after he disappeared in Texas and that the car was found laden with drugs. Uh Uh-huh. Had you heard of that? No, (laughs) that's news to me. Uh, What conclusions did she draw from that? You know, she was very pragmatic about it. She said that she didn't think that her father was linked to what they found in the car. But then again, this was the 1980s and Miami. Indeed it was. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Eventually, Clay's daughter linked me with her elder sister, who was also willing to speak with me, but not to be interviewed. She did, though, suggest I reach out to a couple named Ted and Roseanne, who were close friends of her parents. Here's Ted. How I met Clay was through an associate of mine at work who knew Clay from the military, introduced me to Clay. I don't know how Clay got to be to Miami, but I think he was looking for a place to raise his children. He had uh, three girls, and he wanted to start a new life. And Clay made an immediate impression, just as he had on Phil and Ruth in that bar in Perrine, when he handed them his card. He was good-looking, tall. He was taller than six feet. He was lanky, very charming, nice smile, quick to laugh, always good-humored, very much a family man. Family was what instantly connected the two men. We used to gather together with Clay and his family. And you know, he was a, a very family-oriented person. Easy-spoken and charming to be around. We had a lot of fun together whenever we were together. For barbecues, help each other around the house. We all had homes that needed repair of one type or another. I remember working on Clay's house one time painting it and we just got to know the families and were just associated in that way just pure family relationships very handsome family pretty wife their wives also became very close friends and though ted had an important job with a government employment agency they didn't spend too much time talking about their professional lives never talked to any business really I knew what Clay did. I knew he was a private investigator. And that's as far as I went in terms of knowing what kind of work he did. Did you ever get the chance to visit Clay at Intercept, the agency in Perrine, where he worked as a private investigator? Yeah, I was on an errand with Clay. He asked me to ride with him someplace. I don't know, pick up something maybe for the house. I don't remember right now. But he said, I have to stop off at the office. You want to come up? I said, sure. He introduced me to Bob Adams and another fellow there. And I had understood from Clay that these were former intelligence people from the federal government, whether CIA, Army intelligence. They were all associated. I think that's how Clay got to know these people through their Army and intelligence contacts. 
And I was up there for a few minutes, looked around, and it was a nice office, and they had what I thought was an awfully large computer set up. You know, it wasn't at that time anything that I've ever seen in a small office. These weren't laptops. These were like what today would be described as servers. In other words, that's where all the main memory was contained and no more than that. You worked for a government agency. How would you compare the technology of that computer compared to what you had at your offices? Most government offices have a a desktop and a a little serve on the bottom, but this thing was, I mean, to describe it close to Xerox machine at that time, you know, one of these heavy-duty office machines. It was that kind of setup. Clay said this was their computer system. I just was impressed that such a small office would have such an enormous setup for computers. And at the time, because of the size of the computer, that would be directly in keeping with its capability. So it would have been advanced and expensive at the time. I would imagine, yeah. You know, you usually see those in movies today where they could access almost anything as they do in the movies. I don't know what these guys accessed on that computer, but I'm sure it was more than what a citizen could attain on a home computer or an office computer. The computer capabilities of the agency stuck out to Ted, but there was nothing that stuck out as odd in terms of Clay's job. Did he ever give you any indication that he was worried about his safety or involved with people who could be dangerous? No intercept with their backgrounds were probably doing very sophisticated investigations on the side for the government. That was my impression. Not that they were involved in any of the local drug business that was rampant in Miami at the time. I never suspected that. And if that were the case, Clay probably wouldn't have brought you to his place of work. No. I was quite happy with his employers over there. They seemed to have a good rapport when I went up to the office, and there was nothing sinister about the place at all. But Intercept was a fairly new job for Clay, correct? Yeah, he lived in the Carolinas, and he came into Miami, would have known. I don't know where he would have known them from outside of Miami. And there was nothing about Clay's lifestyle that would suggest he was enjoying the lucrative benefits an illegal source of income would afford. Remember, the group of friends rotated home maintenance projects to save money. And that lack of money was also apparent when Clay's widow was left with four kids, one of them a newborn. There was no money. She went to work. She had to go to work. I mean, they depended on Clay's income for everything. And so they weren't stockpiling money anywhere. God, no. Sandra had to go back to work as soon as she could. Uh, She worked as a legal secretary. She needed the support to support her family. I believe she got some benefits from Social Security as uh, widows with children or something like that. But that certainly didn't cover her expenses at the house and kids in school and stuff like that. 
So Clay wasn't making a notable income at the time immediately before his death, which was also unnotable, at least in terms of the media coverage. There wasn't press attention to his disappearance. No, no, there was nothing in the press. Why? Well, I guess there were other stories. <laughs> you have to remember, Miami at that time was a wild town. And we never saw anything in the press about it. I don't even think there was an obituary column about Clay. Do you remember where you were or how you first learned that Clay's body had been found? Yeah, we were sitting with Sandra, and maybe that's when the police came in and informed her that they found the remains in the Everglades and suspected it was Clay, and then they did some forensic work on the remains and confirmed that it was Clay. But I, at that time, I said, no, that can't be right. I always felt, no, but he's going to walk in because this is who Clay is. He's very family-oriented. And after the time when, you know, Sandra had to go to work and the kids went to school and it was, it was something that I had to accept that he wasn't coming back. Clay didn't return, although his car did show up, as his daughter mentioned, in the Lone Star State. I don't know how it ever got to Texas. Anyways, they found the car. Customs, I believe, was the agency that contacted the family about the car. Were law enforcement helpful to her at the time? I don't think so. They wanted information from her. But they wouldn't give her any information. That was that kind of relationship. It was their investigation, and you had no right to ask questions about it. Looking back now, do you have any theories as to what had happened? Yeah, it pretty much confirms my suspicions that he was on to something and that whoever he was on to found out about it and had him killed. I thought it was more a high-end gangster killing than it was a drug-related thing. Like Phil and Clay's daughter, Ted also recalls a very prominent police presence at Clay's memorial service. What I thought would be just family turned out to be a parade of suits. I remember them lining up against the, the wall standing, and it just struck me as so many of these law enforcement types including the people from Intercept. And it was unusual for that kind of group to be at a funeral. And if anybody watches enough police TV, they always notice that the police are always there at a suspected death funeral. But this was unusually large group. There must have been about a dozen of them in a small reception room at a memorial funeral place. It was crowded, you know, for a small room with these guys standing around. It's the only way I could describe it. It wasn't a massive room, but these guys were filling up the space. So they were hard to ignore. <laughs> Couldn't ignore them. Did you get the feeling at the time that they were there to send a message? No, I, I kind of suspected that they were there because they had some interest in Clay. Not a message, just wanted to pay their respects to a colleague. But funeral guests aside, who would have killed Clay and why? His children were left without a father and without answers to questions that have remained for more than 40 years. 
Ted still struggles with the senselessness, just as he did after Clay's death. Even after they found the body and we had the memorial service, I just couldn't believe that Clay wouldn't be walking in the door one day. But it never happened. Just carrying around his cremains in the car until they were disposed of by our friend. It typified what was remaining of Clay because the cremains were in a box, like a three by five box, an index card box. That's about the size of it. And normally cremains go in a larger, larger container, but there wasn't much of him to dispose of. And our friend, uh, mutual friend, took his ashes out to the ocean and put them in the water which was a very sad experience because the girls were there. That pretty much ended the story of Clayton, a little box of ashes dispersed at sea, and very good friend. It was a trauma that the family lived through for many years. They never really had closure. So why didn't the police or Intercept ever get to the bottom of who killed Clay Williams? Back to Phil Stanford. Yeah, that's, that's a big question that's still hanging out there. One explanation, one possible explanation, is that somehow they were involved. I mean, there was a lot of corruption in the sheriff's department at that time. In fact, half of the homicide squad, 28 of 56, were either on, under suspension or under indictment. They'd been taking money off of dead bodies and, and undoubtedly involved in the drug trade. So it's possible they had some sort of deal with Clay, which would explain why they've lost the records, for God's sake. Another possibility is that he was working with them as some kind of an informant, and maybe Intercept had something to do with his death. I certainly didn't think so at the time, but the more we look into it, the more possible it seems, at least that Intercept Connections had something to do with it. I know that Clay's friend had the idea that he was working for the government at that time. If he was working for the government, it was because he'd been caught by law enforcement and turned into an informant. Unless, devil's advocate, he was there undercover that's so unusual at, at this level to have a, have an undercover cop posing as a drug dealer. But how would you also explain the fact that his family had no money? I mean, the friend group were taking turns and, and helping one another on house projects because they didn't have money to hire outside contractors. And also, she had to go to work immediately after Clay's death. If he had been working for the government in any sort of official capacity, they would have had money. And so the lack of money, I think, is more than likely evidence that... (laughs) Remember, he just started at Intercept. They were making the major part of their money from drugs and hadn't been there long enough, let's suppose, to cash in on that. One of the major incentives for getting into some risky business like drug dealing is that you don't have money and you want to get it as much and and as fast as possible. And so you can turn that lack of money around 180 uh, degrees and make it an argument why he would have been involved, perhaps in some sort of drug deal. And so for me, the question is, whose side was he on? Very likely there was a double cross, whether he double crossed someone or someone double crossed him. 
And he got killed and, and dumped in the Everglades. Yeah. But why and by whom? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it's still an open murder case in Miami-Dade, and they can't find the papers. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? On the next murder in Miami, Phil Stanford returns to Washington. So I got in touch with a radical peace and justice organization. Leading him back to Miami with a dangerous new mission. You're lucky you didn't get yourself killed. Yeah, I suppose so. Before accepting a life-altering invitation. Lamar wants to meet me at the mutiny, the hangout for all the premier drug smugglers in Miami. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.